0: I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 2. What happened in the spiritual realm when Jesus rose from the dead? I don't know that we really understand anything except by way of contrast. It's very difficult for us to uh, appreciate how good it is to feel well unless you've been sick. Hard to appreciate how good it feels to be warm unless you've been cold. We just take for granted that uh, we can taste food and enjoy it until we get COVID or something else that causes us to lose our taste. And then when we get our taste back, we think, oh, this tastes so good. I don't know that we really understand anything except by way of contrast. And I think that also applies to the good news of the gospel. It doesn't sound like very good news unless you have, first of all, interacted with the fact that uh, the good news is preceded by bad news. There's a very bleak diagnosis that the Scripture gives about us and our spiritual condition. I don't think that many of us uh, really feel it, feel how bad it is, and therefore the gospel doesn't seem like it's all that, that much good news since we basically think that we're pretty good people. In my text today, there are two things that are dealt with. The first is that there is a very bleak diagnosis. And may the Holy Spirit help me and help you to understand just what a bad diagnosis we have received from the Lord. There are really three terrible things that are true about us. And uh, I'll look at these three terrible things, and then, uh, after the bleak diagnosis, there is in this text described a comprehensive cure. It just exactly meets the the needs that we have that are diagnosed with this very bleak diagnosis. Follow along with me in Colossians chapter two verses thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen. Where we read this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now the three things that the Lord tells us about ourselves, this very bleak diagnosis, is first of all, you're dead. That's pretty bleak. You are dead. The second thing is that there is a record of debt that stands against you. And the third thing is that there were rulers and authorities that were armed to do you great harm, rulers and authorities. And as for the first problem, the Bible says that God made us alive together with Him. That answers the problem of we are dead. It says that He canceled the record of death that stood against us. That answers the record of debt. And that thirdly, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That takes care of the rulers and authorities who have the capacity to do you great harm. And so that's the basic way that I'm going to look at this text and try to help you to see the truth of it and to feel the truth of it. There are a couple of movies that that I know of at least, and I'm not a great movie watcher, but I have seen at least two movies where throughout the movie uh, you are introduced to leading characters in the movie, and it's only very late in the movie that you find out that these characters that you've come to relate to are in fact dead people. So big surprise, thinking of a couple of movies Uh, one of them you probably will never see, called The Others, had Nicole Kidman in it, and all along you think that she is the live person, and then you find out she's dead. And then there's another movie, I can't think of the name, The Sixth Sense, where you find out at the end that the person that you thought was alive, who sees dead people, is in fact himself a, uh, a dead person. Well, that would be quite a shock to go to the doctor with various problems and he comes out and he says, well, I've got bad news for you. You're dead. (laughs) That's worse than I thought. Uh, The Bible does use the word dead here and in a number of places to describe what our relationship with God is like before we are raised from the dead. Now, being raised from the dead is a distinctive event that must happen in your life. If you're never raised from the dead, then you stay dead. And so if you have never been raised from the dead by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, then what I'm getting ready to say this morning applies to you. It applied to me before I was raised from the dead, and to every person in here who has been born again before we were born again, we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. There are two reasons that are given here in this passage of Scripture as to why we are dead. But let me first of all just kind of give a little punch to the metaphor. Obviously you are not literally dead or you wouldn't be sitting here this morning with your heart beating. So dead is a word picture to describe what happens to a person spiritually when they are separated from God. That's the first thing. Death is a separation of your non-material part from your material part. Death is when your soul leaves your body. That's what death is. And spiritual death is when there is a separation between you and God. This was the threat that was made to the first humans when they were placed in a, a happy environment with every good thing that they could possibly imagine God said, you must obey me, but if you disobey me by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then in that day you will surely die. Now the day that they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did not die physically, but God kept his word and they did die spiritually. And there opened up a great gulf between between God and between humans, between all humans. Because these first two parents, Adam and Eve, Were representative humans. They represented the entire human race. And so when they sinned and when the curse of death came upon them, then curse came upon every human being who has descended from Adam by ordinary generation. I say by ordinary generation because throughout history there has only been one human being who was not born by ordinary generation, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Even babies who were born in vitrio, what we would call test tube babies and artificial insemination and all of that, there still is a human daddy involved, but with the Lord Jesus Christ, there was no human daddy involved. Instead, he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of her yet without sin. Everybody else who descends from Adam by an ordinary generation is born in a condition of death, a condition where we are separated from God. So death speaks of separation, and when we are dead spiritually, we are separated from God. We don't look at God as being our friend. Uh, When we really know who God is and what God expects, most of us wish that He never existed. It's a foolish thing to wish, but many of us have to confess that I remember, I can remember myself wishing that God never existed. If He's going to try to keep me from doing the things that I want to do, and if I have to worry about hell and pleasing Him... I just think the world would be better off if there were no God. And some of you may not m- remember having uh, ideas that specific, but I think if you're honest with yourself, if you're especially if you're still dead in your trespasses and sins, you just kind of wish that God would leave you alone. And if you've got to do something to make Him happy every once in a while, then, well, let's just get it over with. But I don't really love God. I don't really enjoy... Uh, what God has to do, it sounds all pretty boring to me and looks like a boring life if I'm going to live my life doing what God wants me to do, and I just wish He'd leave me alone. You see, that's evidence that you're separated from God. You don't feel that way towards people that you're united with. So the, the one thing that death indicates when it's used as a metaphor for our spiritual condition is that we are separated from God. Now, there's something else about dead people. They don't get better on their own. That's the second thing. They don't get better on their own. And so it may be, I pray that it is so, that the Lord today will stir you up and say, well, I am separated from God. What the preacher has just said is true of me. I do not love God. I do not want to submit to God. I want, to, I want God to leave me alone as much as possible. I want him to give me good things when I want good things. But other than that, I just want him to leave me alone. It may be that you're saying, well, that's true of me. Now, what am I supposed to do? Here's the bad news. You're dead. You cannot raise yourself. You, your condition is so bad that if you try your very, very best, you are still just the twitches of a dead man. It still is not going to accomplish. You're too late. You're too late to try to please God by your good works. You're dead already. You're dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Your only hope is going to be brought forth in the message today, but your only hope is if there is a divine intervention and if God steps in and raises you from the dead. It may be that throughout your life you have thought, one of these days I'm going to get my life right with God when I am good and ready. I'm just not good and ready yet. But one of these days I'm going to get my life right with God when I am good and ready. I just want to point out to you that there have been a number of things that have happened in your life that should have made you good and ready. Somebody close to you died. Maybe you got sick. Maybe you were spared in a car wreck. And all of those things should have made you good and ready, but you never got good and ready. You know why? Because you're dead. You're dead. And this passage of Scripture tells us that there are two things that make you dead. Now, I want you to understand that I'm not talking down my nose to you today. This was true of everybody in this room before God stepped in and raised us from the dead. And so we don't think that we're any better than you. Look, if God raised me from the dead, it wasn't because I was a good man. I was dead. You were dead if you've been raised from the dead. God has to get all the glory if you're alive today because you and I were dead. But this passage of Scripture says if you're still dead, there are two reasons. Let's look at what it says here in verse 13. It says, You were dead. In your trespasses, that's one thing, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now the first thing is that you were dead in your trespasses. Now that's just another word for sin. It shows, it shows up in some versions of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This is the fact that we persistently do things that the Lord does not want us to do. Now, most of us have, a, have an idea that we're pretty good people. And, uh, you know, you, you clean up nice and you're in church this morning, so I don't want to be too mean to you. But I do want to be honest with you. And the fact of the matter is, those things that you think are little things that you can do and still be a pretty good person, God doesn't see them that way. God doesn't see your, God doesn't see your laziness as a little thing. You know, there are some people... Like I said, who are saying, one of these days I'm going to stir myself up and I'm going to do what I've got to do. But in the meanwhile, you're content to just lie, lie still like like a donkey that doesn't want to do any work. And uh, so that's not a small thing. Years and years ago, some very insightful people uh, compiled a list of what they called the seven deadly sins. And those seven deadly sins, that list does not appear in the Bible, but it's a very insightful list. And one of them is the sin of sloth or laziness. It's one of these sins that gives rise to so much other evil. And so we might look at laziness as being a small thing, but, but the Lord doesn't see it that way. Laziness is a, is a sin that has dire consequences. And then in our culture, we tend to have a, a, a mild view of the sin of lust. Pornography is all over the place. Movies are, are full of suggestive material. Even uh, companies like Disney, who have historically uh, presented wholesome material for children, has recently admitted through a leaked film that they are, in fact, every time they have the opportunity putting messages into these movies. This is, this is their own admission if you haven't seen the video. This is not some crazy fundamentalist preacher making this up. This is, this is the, a, a video that's been leaked from a Disney Zoom meeting. People on the Disney uh, corporation saying, every time that I can, I put in something to promote the idea of lesbianism or gay gay or bisexuality or transgenderism every time i just put it right in there it's all over the place but how much misery is brought up in how much misery is brought about in this world in our own lives as a result of lust many of us can look back on experiences that we had before the lord saved us and things that at the time we thought were no big deal but have in fact had lasting repercussions in our lives. Lust is a big deal. And then what about your anger? Does your anger bother God? Well, you say, well, I, you know, I've, I get angry occasionally, but for the most part I keep it under control. Did you know that the Lord Jesus Christ said that anger is in the same category of sin as murder? You've heard it said by them of old time, you shall not murder. But Jesus went on to say, I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother is guilty of murder. Now, being angry is not exactly the same as murdering, but it's in the same, it's in the same category of things. Have you been angry? Then you have been guilty of the same kind of sin that leads to murder. What about pride? Pride. You know, in our culture, it seems like nobody ever really admires humility anymore. All of our entertainers, all of our athletes, seems like they get more adulation if they are proud and bragging on themselves and looking down and treating their opponents with disrespect. But the Lord hates pride. The Lord says over and over again that He is going to bring down every lofty thing. And so the pride that plagues you and me is not a small thing. It's one of the the trespasses that separates between us and God. That God says if you're going to be lazy and if you're going to be lustful and if you're going to be angry and if you're going to be prideful, you and I are not going to get along. What about envy? What about greed? What about gluttony? All of these are are sins that indicate that we have a a fundamental perspective on how to use things and relate to people that disagrees with God. And so our trespasses have separated us from God so that we are dead in our sins because of our trespasses. But there's a second thing in this verse that tells why we are separated from God. And it requires a little explanation. It says that you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, circumcision was a rite that was required under the Old Covenant. And it was a symbolic rite that said, my heart has been changed so that I now agree with God. So that's what circumcision was supposed to represent and... And uh, I, I could trace that out for you. Uh, if it was just an empty ceremony that meant nothing, then it was meaningless. But, uh, but the real meaning of it was, I have circumcised my heart so that the, uh, the desires of my heart have now been dedicated to the Lord. And so this is something else that, has, that separates us from God, is the uncircumcision of our flesh Namely, that we've got all these trespasses and we really don't see them as being that big of a deal. And in fact, when we can get away with indulging ourselves in some of these trespasses, we do. And that indicates that the the fundamental attitude of your heart, the perspective of your mind, is directed away from God. God. Directed away from. And so the problem is not just that you have sins. The problem is that you are sinful. Not just that you do bad things. But that you fundamentally are a person who wants to continue living a style of life that keeps you from submitting wholeheartedly to the Lord. And I'm telling you, you don't have to be in trouble with the law for this to be true of you. It could be something incredibly small that you just say, this is mine, I'm going to keep it, I'm not going to let God have it, I'm going to run my life in this way. And that proves the point that you have the uncircumcision of your flesh. The problem is not just that you have trespasses, but that you are a trespasser. Not just that you have sins, but that you are a sinner. That's a very bleak diagnosis, the first thing that the Lord says is you are dead. And then the second thing that this passage of Scripture tells us is that there is a, there's a document that is against you. There's a handwriting of ordinances that is against you. You can see that in verse 14, where it says uh, that he canceled the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. So it comes up in the fact that it has been canceled, but before it's canceled, then it's incumbent on you. And this is talking about the demands of God's law. And so, just for practice, let's go through the most fundamental summary of God's law. Let's go through the Ten Commandments. And let's imagine that each of these commandments is sent by the Lord, and He comes up and He wants to ask you a question or two. And then He's going to give a report to the judge. And so the first commandment comes up, Thou shalt love the Lord... Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the first commandment says, Have you obeyed this commandment? And you say, Well, as, uh, as far as I know, I've, I've never had any God that is before God. Uh, I, I've never been part of another religion. I do recognize that there is a God. I, I do have uh, respect for God, I have respect for godly people. I mean, for crying out loud, that's why I'm in church this morning. And uh, so I... I do have a respect for God. And the first commandment says, Well, I'm curious, are there some things that you put above God that you put before God? I mean, are you consistently day by day living the life that you would live if God were first? And you say, Well, I mean, if you put it that way, no, not really. Then the commandment says, Enough said. Turns around and says to the judge, He's guilty, Your Honor. Now the second commandment comes up and says, and the second commandment is, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images, nor the likeness of anything that is heaven in heaven above. And you say, well, I, I have never bowed down to an image. And the second commandment says, well, have you always worshipped God in the way that he prescribes? Because the gist of this commandment is not that you should avoid what was wrong, but that you should do what is right. So have you always worshipped God in the way that he, he prescribes? Have you repented of your sin? He requires that. Have you trusted in his son? That's what he requires. Have you joined yourself to a local church? Have you followed him in baptism? And you say, well, if you put it that way, no, no, I haven't. And the second commandment turns around and says to the judge, he's guilty, your honor. So here comes the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And the third commandment says, have you always uh, reverenced the Lord? Have you always uh, Reverenced his names, his titles, his attributes, his ordinances, his word, and his works. I mean, are you a faithful reader and lover of God's word? Are you you ever say bad words? Have you ever said a bad word? Have you ever used God's name in a bad way? Well, yeah, but everybody does it. Third commandment turns around and says he's guilty, Your Honor. Fourth commandment steps up and says. Uh, The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do you give God the time that is due to him? He requires one day out of seven. Even in the new covenant, there's one day out of the week that is called the Lord's day. Do you honor him with that day? Or do you just treat it like Saturday part two? Well, everybody does it. Guilty, your honor. And then the fifth commandment comes and says, Honor thy father and thy mother. Did you do that? Well, now, I did respect my mom and dad. I I did obey them always? Well, uh, no, not always. I mean, there were times when I argued with my mom. There were times when I had to be spanked because I disobeyed. And, and, uh, of course, when I got to be a teenager, I went through a time of rebellion. But everybody goes through a time of rebellion. And the fifth commandment turns around and says, he's guilty, your honor. The sixth commandment comes and says, thou shalt not kill. And you say, well, no, I have never killed anybody. And the sixth commandment says, have you ever been angry with someone, so angry that you wanted to hurt them? Well, yeah, but guilty, Your Honor. The seventh commandment comes and says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, I, I've always been faithful to my spouse. Have you, ever, have you ever looked lustfully at another woman? Have you ever looked lustfully at pornography? Have you ever kind of rewound that place in the video that you thought, well, it's too bad that that's in the video, but after it went away, that's the thing that you really relished and turned over in your mind? Yes. Guilty. Eighth commandment comes, thou shalt not steal. You ever stolen anything? I mean, even a piece of candy when you were little? Oh, for crying out loud, you're going to be that picky? Yeah. Yes, that picky. Take something from your brother. Take something from your sister that wasn't allowed. Sneak a little something out of mom or dad's mom's purse or dad's wallet. Sneak a little something out. Did you ever steal somebody's answers? Did you ever steal somebody's material that they had written and put it in a paper that you had written? Did you always pay for those CDs and DVDs? Or were you stealing copyrighted material? <sighs> Guilty, Your Honor. Ninth commandment comes, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. You always told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And by this time you just say, no. Guilty, your honor. And the tenth commandment comes and says, have you, have you always had full contentment with your own estate? Have you always had a right and charitable frame of spirit toward your neighbor and all that is his? No. There were times when I, I felt... Uh, vicious towards someone who had something that I wanted and I, I have coveted. And the Tenth Commandment turns around and says, guilty, Your Honor. Now, this is just the most basic summary of God's law. Well, no, it's not really the most basic summary. The most basic summary is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. How are you doing with that? My friends, I would not trust the best five seconds that I've ever lived to get me into heaven. There is a handwriting of ordinances that is against you. There is a record of debt that stands against you with its legal demands. And then as we go through this bleak diagnosis, there's a third thing. There is. there are these powers and authorities that are armed against you. Now, these powers and authorities are spiritual beings. So a lot of us just think there's, there's God, there's generic angels, there's humans, and that's it. Well, among these angels, there are apparently some angels who have been entrusted with special power and special authority. And so they're called powers and authorities, rulers and authorities. And not all of them are good. There are some of them who are good and are are sent forth to serve those who will inherit salvation. But apparently there were some of them who revolted with Satan. I think that Satan is one of them, but that there were others who revolted with him. And what I'm getting ready to tell you is an imaginative setup. What I'm getting ready to tell you is not in the Bible, but it's an imaginative setup for what this is. It is based loosely on what we read in Job chapter 1 when the sons of God were presenting themselves to God. And Satan comes among them and God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there's no one like him? He's upright. And Satan says, Well, no wonder you've been so good to him take away everything that he has and he'll curse you and God says all right go ahead. So my imaginative recreation is based on that. And here's my imaginative recreation that one day after God had created the new world, Satan had already revolted and uh God comes and shows himself before Satan. God shows Satan shows himself before God is what I meant to say. God shows himself Satan shows himself before God and God says have you seen the new world that I've made? Yes, I have. Have you seen the the humans that I have made to help repopulate heaven after your great revolt? I have seen them, and uh, you know they're they're beautiful, they're impressive, but uh, I bet I can get them to sin. I bet I can get them to revolt against you. And let me make this deal with you: if if I get them to revolt against you, then. Uh, I I want to then be able to corrupt not just those two, but the whole race. And God says, all right. And then not only that, but uh, I and my fellow helpers here, we are going to so deceive the whole world that virtually the whole world is going to belong to us. We will be the, the prince of the power of the air. We will be the God of that world if we are successful. And the Lord says, okay. And then, not only that, but uh, we're going to drag them down to eternal death. We're going to wrap them up in webs of deception, and we're going to take them down to eternal death. And the Lord says, okay. Now, he couldn't have done it without the Lord's permission. And so, the Lord had to give him permission to do what he did. And in the garden, Satan is described as a serpent. And so for the sake of this illustration, I want you to imagine a serpent with a piece of fruit. We'll just say an apple. I don't know that the forbidden fruit was an apple. But let's just imagine a serpent with an apple. And that apple, with a bite out of it, represents the success that he had in drawing our parents into sin. I also think that it's helpful if you, uh, if you have ever seen a video of an Iranian uh, spider-tailed viper, that if you would imagine that he's got a tail like that. Now, if you haven't ever seen a video of an Iranian spider-tailed viper, then when you get home, look it up. Not now, but look it up later. It will, it will amaze you. It's this, it's this viper that has a tail that looks like a bug. And so what he does with his tail is he wriggles it around. It looks for all the world like a spider or a bug there on the rocks. And so a bird will fly down to eat the bug. And when he does, then Satan grabs the bird and eats it. I mean, the, the snake. <laughs> the snake grabs the bird. But in my illustration, of course, that's the point that I'm making. And so <clears throat> Satan is represented by this this Iranian spider-tailed viper who has a an apple in his mouth with a bite out of it. And uh, then to, to represent the fact that these rulers and authorities were given power over the world, I want you to imagine a vile, stinking dragon. Not a nice dragon like would be in a, a Chinese New Year's parade, but a vile, stinking dragon. And uh, like, like the, way, the way that dirty reptiles stink. I, I, don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever pulled a snapping turtle from underneath a log, but if you have, I want you to think of that smell. It really stinks. And uh, and so there is this dragon, and he's got a crown on his head, and he's got a scepter in his hand. And then, I was going to use the Grim Reaper for this third ruler and power, but I want to stick in the insect. I want to stick in the vile world, and so I just want you to think of a great big old blood-filled tick. One of the, one of the nastiest things that you can think of. But he is glutted with the, he is glutted with blood in this nasty big. Full blood-filled tick has a sickle in his hand or a scythe in his hand because he has the power of death. And then, <coughs> uh, and then the fourth ruler and authority that I want you to think of. I, I just want you to think of a a, a a big creepy spider. I mean, not a not a cute little spider, a really big spider. I mean, like the kind of spider that got after Frodo. In uh, in Lord of the Rings, that kind of Shelob, that kind of a great big mean nasty spider, and this spider has a web. And I want all four of these things to represent the powers that were given to the rulers and authorities when humans were successfully lured into sin. There is the power to enmesh and entangle that the spider has. There is the power of death that the big tick has there is the power to rule over and influence world affairs that <coughs> that the dragon has and then there's the power to deceive that the that the snake has and all of these things have authority over you until Jesus Christ disarms them well now let's turn from the bleak diagnosis to the comprehensive cure and so we have to go back to verse 13 where the Lord says, you has he made alive. You, has he ma- you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. <coughs> <coughs> but God made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Now remember I said that there were two things that made you dead. There were first of all the trespasses, and then there was the uncircumcision of your flesh. So not just the fact that you had done wrong things, but that you were a person who loved to do wrong things. Not just that you (coughs) had committed sins, but that you were a sinner. Both of those things are dealt with here. When God makes us alive, He forgives us of all of our trespasses. So those are just gone. Those trespasses are gone, and He made you alive. That's the way that He cures the uncircumcision of your flesh. So when God saves a person, He does not simply say, okay, we're going to forget all the bad things that you have done wrong, but I'm going to leave you alone, and you still will be a person who loves to walk away from Me. No, He changes you. And the way that He changes you is that He raises you with Christ. And so this is what was going on in the spiritual realm when Jesus was raised from the dead. He was making provision so that dead people like us could also be raised from the dead with him. And so Jesus deals with that first terrible uh, problem that we have in our bleak diagnosis. We are dead and in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our heart. But now what about all of these, this, this debt of the written code that was against us? You remember I went through the Ten Commandments and every one of them says, turns around and says to the judge, He's guilty, Your Honor. Well, the Bible says in verse 14 that Jesus canceled the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. And look at what he did. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So insofar as the law of God has the authority to condemn you, and the law of God says the only way that you are going to be right with God is through perfectly obeying God these laws, and you must do it. It's a debt. Jesus says, I'll take that debt. I will take all of the condemning notices that are marshaled against this person, and for everyone who believes in me, I will nail it to the cross. Now, paper is very common in our days, and so I don't want you just to think of a a, a debit sheet that someone might tear off of a, of a tablet, but think of something that uh, maybe made of clay, something made of papyrus. But all of these are stated against you. Obligations that you have to God. Uh, punishments that you owe to God. And Jesus Christ takes every one of them and he puts a nail through them. And that's a way of saying this debt has been canceled. And so when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he, uh, he nailed The handwriting of ordinances, the debt, record of debt against us with all of its legal demands. He nailed it to the cross and said, I am fulfilling this on behalf of those who trust in me. And then what about these four nasty creatures that I had to represent the authorities and the rulers? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ disarms every one of them. He takes away the power of deception from the Satan from from the serpent so that he is no longer able to deceive you. He takes away the, the scepter from the the nasty dragon so that he is no longer able to rule over you. He takes away the scythe of death from the the big fat gloated tick so that you are set free from the fear of death and then he takes away the power of the spider to keep you bound in your sins and keep you bound away from the Lord, away from the Lord. He takes away all of those things, all of these spiritual powers and authorities who apparently had been granted the right to exercise these things over everyone, all the humans, Jesus takes them away. And then he does something, he does something very bold with them. It says he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The triumph was a Roman custom, and the, Rome, and the custom was that when a, when a general had been successful in a military campaign, he would preserve some of the rulers of the conquered country to take part in a parade back at Rome. And so when uh, those who were on the watch at Rome saw that a military commander was coming, perhaps he would send messengers ahead, I'm coming back, and we're going to have a parade then outside the city he would stop and he would tie up the rulers and authorities the people who had been conquered the rulers who had been conquered in this foreign land and some of the people from the city would go out to meet and then there would just be a big parade as they would go through the streets of Rome and some of these uh, some of these generals Some of these rulers and authorities would be perhaps in cages. Maybe they would be tied to wheels. But anyway, it was a way of saying, these have been thoroughly defeated. And you might say, well, that seems awfully cruel. Would Jesus do something like that? Let me just remind you what these these rulers and authorities have done in this world and what they've done in this life. All of the pain and the suffering... the the suffering that you yourself have endured, the sickness, the sorrow over death, the the enslavement to drugs and alcohol and other addictive behaviors. These are not good guys. These are bad guys. And Jesus is the good guy. And to emphasize the great victory that He uh, completed over them, then He disarms them and he puts them to open shame and he triumphs over them in him by the cross when jesus arose from the grave the bible doesn't tell us exactly what took place in heaven i mean because when jesus died his body was dead but you know his his human soul was not dead when when humans die their soul doesn't die and certainly His divine nature never died. But there are a couple of passages in the Scripture that I think give us a pretty good theory. What happened when when Jesus died, his body was in the grave. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews that says that Jesus entered the most holy place. Not the one on earth, but the one that is in heaven. And he entered not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. And there on the mercy seat in heaven, he gave evidence that he had completed the work that the Father had given him to do. And then there's something else in the book of Psalms that kind of gives the idea that there was a real welcoming celebration. There is a psalm that was obviously written so that choirs would sing it. It has a, it has an antiphonal construction. That is that one choir would sing this and then the other choir would, would answer it. And in this psalm, one choir says, Lift up your heads, ye gates, that the King of glory may come in. And the other choir says, Who is this King of glory? And the first choir answers, The Lord, strong and mighty in battle, he is the King of glory. And then I imagine that the, the second choir gets the privilege of saying, Lift up your heads, ye you gates, because it's all repeated. Lift up your heads, you gates, and be you lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty in battle. He is the King of glory. And I think it intimates this, this triumphal procession that when Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, he bound the strong man so that he would no longer have authority and power over his people. And now the question remains for you today. What are you going to do about all of this? And you said, well, well, preacher, you just said I'm dead. There's nothing that I can do. Here's what you should do. Lord, I cannot save myself. Will you please save me? You have said... That as many as receive Jesus, to them you give the right to become children of God. As best I can, Lord, as much as I know about Jesus, I receive him. I want to turn away now from being a person who wishes that you didn't exist. I want to turn away now from being a person who delights in the things that displease you. I want you to save me. I cannot save myself. I'm completely at your mercy Have mercy on me, Lord. Good news is that God is a God who delights to show mercy. And when you come to him humbly, clinging to nothing but to the cross of Jesus Christ and to the person of Jesus Christ as your recommendation to God, he is glad to receive you when you come that way. I would welcome the opportunity to talk with you further about this, as would most of the members of the Bullet Lick Baptist Church. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.